coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you, of course, by our very good friends at Alumni Hall. I hope you guys saw the Memorial Day weekend sale that Alumni Hall had going on this weekend. I tried to put that out there on social media for you guys. Hope you caught wind of that. But they were offering 20% off. If you're listening to this Monday night, you might still have a couple of hours to jump online, alumnihall.com, and find yourself some of the best Georgia gear anywhere for 20% off. But even if you're not listening to this until Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whenever, make sure you are following us on social media. It's at glory underscore UGA on Twitter, just glory UGA podcast on Instagram. But we really try our best to communicate that information to you guys, like when these deals are coming, when these promotions are going on. We'll do that here on the show if we if we get wind of it before we record an episode. But we definitely let you guys know about all those things on social media. So if you're not following us, make sure you do that just so you can help yourself out and get a couple bucks off when you are picking yourself up the latest and best Georgia gear that you will find anywhere out there. So make sure to stop in today inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center here in the Classic City or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. But all right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and I headed to Chicago this weekend with every intention of just rolling back into town all leisurely on Monday with no podcast episode to worry about, nothing to have to be recorded, just ready to click a few buttons here and there to upload that Wind Tunnels episode that I've been telling you guys about, been teasing for a while that Curtis and I have recorded and have had recorded for you for, for a little while now. I had dreams, guys. I really did. I had dreams of that just relaxing trip home after a fun, relaxing Memorial Day weekend getaway, but... It was not meant to be, as, of course, there was more breaking news in the world of Georgia sports over the weekend that was honestly just too big, just too big, too important for us to not jump on here and cover immediately upon getting home, which means, yes, I'm afraid, for those of you that have been anxiously awaiting those Wind Tunnels episodes, we're going to have to bump the first one back once again. And I hate to do that, guys. I'm really excited to get those out there for you guys. I'm excited to talk about those kind of things. And maybe, maybe we will finally get a chance to post it on our Thursday episode. But look, man, I've I've learned my lesson here over the past couple of weeks with all this breaking news. I'm not making any promises because who knows? Who knows what news is going to break next, especially with the SEC spring meeting taking off on Wednesday. I have a feeling that something, actually I know that a couple of things are going to be coming out of the SEC spring meetings. It's just a matter of when. Are they going to break before we record our next episode or after? We'll see. But we will get that wind tells episode out to you. That first one, we have two parts of it. The first one out to you guys as soon as we possibly can. But look, guys, hey, I'm not even mad. I'm not even mad this time. I was kind of last week a little bit, but this time I'm not even mad about having to rearrange our schedule and push the wind tells episode back because all the topics that we need to discuss today on the pod, they're developments that I am very excited about. They are all great for the University of Georgia. So when that's the case, you really can't be all that upset about it. But let's stop burying the lead here. Let's go ahead and jump into this thing. I got quite a few topics to talk about, some big topics to talk about today. And I think, personally, it's obvious where we need to open the show today. Usually I debate this, but when your program wins another national championship, there really is no debate 
as far as I'm concerned. But in case you missed it, and those of you who follow us on social media, there's no chance that you missed it because I was tweeting about it really all weekend. But just in case you missed it, I know it's Memorial Day weekend. A lot of you are probably busy doing fun things for family, friends, all that fun stuff. But in case you missed it, on Saturday, redshirt freshman Georgia men's tennis player Ethan Quinn delivered the fifth men's NCAA singles national championship in the long, very storied history of Georgia men's tennis with a 6-7, 7-6, 6-2 victory over Andre Styler of Michigan. And guys, it was a thrilling match. You know, the, the last set there, Ethan went, ended up running away with it, 6-2, but the first two sets were edge-of-your-seat type of sets. Back and forth, massive momentum swings, huge points, clutch points, national championship caliber shots. They had it all, guys. It was a fantastic match to watch. And it was the good guy, our guy, Ethan Quinn, that ultimately came out on top. And guys, Ethan Quinn is a guy that you are aware of if you listen to this podcast, if you don't tune out when we start talking about Georgia tennis on this pod. But this is a young man who is the best Georgia men's tennis player that I have seen since John Isner. And that's about a 15-year time. So I think what Isner's last year was, was 07, 08, one of those years. So we're talking about 15 years. And Ethan has become the first Georgia player to win an NCAA singles national title since 2002. You heard me right, guys. John Isner, as great as he was, he won a doubles national title, won a couple team national titles. John played for a singles national title, never actually won one while he was here in Athens. Ethan has done it in his first full season playing for the Georgia Bulldogs, and he's now only the third men's player in program history, one of the true blue blood programs in all of college tennis to win an NCAA singles national championship. And honestly, guys, this win for Ethan, this national title, was just the cherry on top of what I truly believe was one of the all-time great freshman seasons in college tennis history. And I don't say that lightly, guys. I, I'm not one for hyperbole. I'm really not. I'm not going to sit here and act like I go back to the 19, early 1980s, 1970s, when college tennis was really kind of hitting its stride. I don't go back that far, and I don't know every freshman that's ever played for every program. But since I have been following college tennis very closely, which has been really about the last... 10 to 15 years, this is one of the absolute best freshman campaigns that I have ever seen. And it's hard to imagine that there are many more in the history of college tennis that have been better than what Ethan Quinn has just put together. Because not only did he win the singles national title, the NCAA singles national title, go back to the fall. He was undefeated in the fall, by the way, guys. He was 9-0 and in the fall, and he won the ITA the Intercollegiate Tennis Association. He won that fall singles title, which is the biggest tournament in the fall in college tennis. He was also recently, in the past couple of weeks, named the SEC Freshman of the Year. And he didn't really get off to a hot start. Actually, it was a pretty rough start for Ethan when we got into the spring season. So the way college tennis works, guys, like there's a fall season, there's a spring season, but the NCAA season is the spring season. We call that dual match season. The fall, you have tournaments, but you're not really playing like, like Georgia doesn't line up and play a match against Florida or a match against Tennessee or whoever. You might play some of those players, but you're playing them in tournaments around the country. And those matches do count in terms of your rankings for the fall season, like how your team performs, especially how the players themselves perform. You talk about singles and doubles rankings, because the ITA is who actually does the rankings for singles and doubles, and also for the for the teams as well. It's not the NCAA. The NCAA basically conducts 
the NCAA tournament. That's essentially what they do. Yeah, 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 the conferences put together their schedules and so on and so forth. But the NCAA, they conduct the tournament and they crown a national champion that way. But most of the seeds for those tournaments, the seedings is usually done based on ITA rankings. Most of the time, they follow the, those almost to a T. Same thing for the singles rankings. Ethan came into the NCAA singles tournament as the number two player in the ITA rankings. He was the number two overall seed in the singles tournament. But back in the fall, Ethan was unbelievable, and he followed up what was a spectacular summer last year. So he was an early enrollee last year for us. That's why he registered. He should have been a last spring. He should have been a a senior in high school, but he came from California from Fresno, came into Athens, and enrolled early. Did not play, but he enrolled early. Was going through practice with the team, getting better, improving his game, all those things. And he took that and he went into last summer, like this time last year, and was. Incredible guys. Like he was beating big time college players, guys that were three, four years older than him. He was beating some pro guys. He was winning some of these smaller pro tournaments. He won the junior national championship in Kalamazoo. It was a truly spectacular summer for Ethan. And that's really where he caught my attention. I knew that he was highly rated coming out of high school, but the dude did not play at all last spring. He didn't play at all. He was redshirting. In late last spring, actually, like during our season, since he wasn't playing, there were a couple of weekends where he went and played some pro tournaments. And I started watching towards the end of last spring season, like, okay, this guy uh, actually might end up being pretty good because he's playing really well against some big time players and some pro tournaments. And you get into the summer and all these like top 10 guys in the college game, he was playing them in the summer and he was beating them and beating a couple of them multiple times. And at that point, I'm like, um, we might have something special on our hands here. But still, I had never seen the guy play. I saw him play. The, the only tournament I was able to see him play was the was the, was the Kalamazoo tournament, the, the singles. He actually played in the singles and the doubles national championships there in Kalamazoo. And I think he played a guy named Ozan Barris, I want to say, in the singles national championship, I think, in Kalamazoo. who's a, a fresh, He's a really good player in his own right. He's a freshman at Michigan State. But that was the first match I saw Ethan play, and I was just blown away at the skill level of this guy at that age, that stage of his development. I streamed the ITA Fall National Championship match back in the fall. I was really excited about that because I wanted to see Ethan play and because he was also playing our number two singles player, Philip Henning, was his opponent in that singles national title. So it was going to be it was going to be a bulldog that was going to win no matter what. So I wanted to, definitely wanted to watch that. But I didn't get a chance to go out and actually watch Ethan play because when we usually ho- we usually host like one fall tournament here in Athens. Usually, however, it's they don't want to do it when we have a football home weekend because it's crazy. Parking's a problem. Like it's just hard to host that one of those weekends. So they usually host them on one of the road weekends. Well, you guys know me. I'm on the road for every Georgia football game. So I usually can't watch those fall tournaments at home. The, the exception was like the COVID year because, you know, we couldn't travel to every one of those games for obvious reasons. Still went to most of them and couldn't get out to every single one of them. So needless to say, once we got into the spring season, which is kind of a misnomer, the spring season basically starts when the new year begins, like mid to late January is when the spring season starts. I know obviously it's not spring then, but they still call it the spring season because you kind of break the spring season up into two portions. You have the indoor season and you have the outdoor season. The indoor season, like there is a, it's, that's not controlled by the NCAA. That's purely ITA. They have an indoor national championship. The, The women, Georgia women won that back in 2019. And then the, the outdoor portion of the spring schedule, that is what the NCAA basically controls. But all of your results even during the indoor season, they do count in your rankings towards the outdoor season. I know it's kind of convoluted. College, college tennis is an amazing sport. Like the drama in it is, outside of football, I think it's unmatched. But I will admit, college tennis, the powers that be that that run the show, they certainly do not do the sport any favors. 
There are some reforms on the way that I'm hoping will help, but we'll see. It, it certainly is. I know if you're not used to how it works, you're kind of like, what? There's a fall, spring season, but there's an indoor, outdoor season this spring. I know, I know, but just bear with me here. So Ethan, coming off a 9-0 and undefeated fall season, an ITA fall singles national championship, coming off this incredible summer, winning pro tournaments, beating some of the best players in college tennis. And then you fast forward to 2023, the new year hits, and we get into the spring season, and all of a sudden, this freshman phenom is struggling. He actually opened the spring season three and nine, guys, three and nine, and he was losing matches to some really good players like Stefan Dostanich from from USC, Elias Spaziri from Texas, who was number one pretty much all year in the ITA singles rankings. But those are guys that he beat last summer. He beat Destanch twice last summer. Destanch was a top 10 guy all of last year and was right around there all of this year as well at USC. A really, really good player, a senior. But Ethan was kind of hitting that freshman wall. He was struggling quite a bit there. And you can kind of see his confidence winning a bit. And our team as well got off to a really poor start to open the spring season. I think we were 5-5 five and five at one point right after we lost to TCU in the second round of the ITA Team Indoors Championships. But then it all turned around for both the team and for Ethan. We were in the loser's bracket. We still had a chance to to certainly help our ranking, get our confidence going, leaving the Indoor National Championship. We played USC, who was number six at the time. Now, we had previously lost to USC back in February, February 5th. We lost them 2-4. Now, we're playing them again a couple of weeks later. Was it February 19th? Like two weeks later, we're playing USC again in the national team indoors. And this time, we come out on top 4-2. This time, Ethan beats Destonics again, I think for the third time in their last four meetings. He lost to him back on February the uh, February the 5th, beat him this time in straight sets. And from that point on, guys, from February 19th through, what was it, I guess May the 27th when he won the NCAA Singles National Championship, Ethan went 22-23. and 23. He lost one match over the final three months of the regular season. I did see that match. That was a match at home against Tennessee against a guy named Johannes Monday, who's been around for, I think he's a junior now. And Monday is fantastic, guys. He's made deep runs into the NCAA singles tournament himself the past couple years. But this year, he actually got knocked out. I think it was in the first round. It was a major upset. He was a top five player. He's like, Monday is awesome. But that did not derail Ethan because after that, Ethan reeled off 17 consecutive wins end of the season 34 and 10 overall and 26 and 7 against ranked opponents so it wasn't like he was doing this against also rants he's playing the best of the best guys he plays court one singles in the best conference in the country for men's college tennis and he did it as a freaking freshman so when I sit here and say that Ethan just put the finishing touches on one of the all-time great freshman seasons in college tennis history I really don't believe it's hyperbole. This is what I'm talking about. I mean, that is one hell of a resume for anybody, let alone a freshman. And with the win, by the way, in the NCAA Singles National Championship, with that victory, he secured a bid into the main draw of the U.S. Open, which is one of the perks for those Singles National Champions. So that'll be fun to watch here in a couple of months. But look, guys, I mean, all those stats I read out, any random article on Ethan Quinn's title can tell you all that stuff, right? Like, that's not why you guys come here. You come here for the real analysis, the inside stuff, the background I just gave you on his start to the season, all those kind of things, going back to the fall. And not to pat myself on the back too much here, but I really do believe that you came to the right place if you're looking to find out about Georgia Tennis and Ethan Quinn and what went down in this run to 
a singles national title because as many great people as there are that cover Georgia sports, as many great outlets as there are out there, as far as I know, now look, I don't consume content from every Georgia outlet out there. I don't, just got to be honest. So there maybe, maybe there's something I'm missing. But as far as I know, we are the only Georgia podcast, or hell, like really the only Georgia media outlet of any kind to regularly cover Georgia tennis. And that's because we are diehards ourselves. I'm a diehard. Charlie's a diehard. Curtis is, but he's not in Athens anymore, so he doesn't get to take in as many matches as maybe he once did. But he still loves Georgia tennis. So it very much is a, a passion project for us. And look, guys, I really do. I love all the attention that Ethan Quinn's singles national title has put on the Georgia tennis program, the spotlight that has placed at least temporarily on the Georgia tennis program. Because this program, this team, these guys, these coaches, they deserve it. College tennis deserves it. I think all that attention is amazing. Heck, that's what I've been going for. That's what I've been trying to do here for the past couple of years, covering Georgia tennis on this podcast. But still, I do believe that we have far more Georgia tennis knowledge and college tennis knowledge than anybody that covers Georgia sports anywhere in this country. And that's not because we're better or smarter than anyone else out there. That's not what I'm trying to say. All I'm saying is we care more. We care more about Georgia tennis. We are invested in it in a way that nobody else that covers Georgia sports out there is. So yeah, I do think you've come to the right place to get filled in on exactly what went down in Lake Nona as Ethan went for that singles national title. But anyway, let's get into this run that Ethan made over the past week and a half. I want to start out by saying this. Ethan got freaking screwed in the draws of the singles national tournament. He absolutely got screwed, guys. In the first round, Ethan had to play a dude named Luke Famba, who I'm sure none of you have ever heard of. That name means absolutely nothing to you. But Luke Famba is a top 20 singles player nationally, according to the ITA tennis rankings. In fact, I think he was number 17 nationally coming into the NCAA singles tournament. That is insane, guys. The number two overall seed. Ethan was the number two overall seed. So a one seed, the number two overall seed. And in the first round, he had to play a guy that was number 17 in the country. So to put that in terms that might be easier for you to understand, like if you follow, let's say, college basketball, for instance. So going into the NCAA basketball tournament last season, or I guess in in March, there are 64 teams. I guess 68 teams make the tournament. There's the play-in games, right? But once you factor in the play-in games, there's 64 teams that get to play first-round games, right? Like actual first-round games. Well, in college tennis, in the NCAA singles tournament, there are also 64 players that get bids to that tournament. And Ethan, as the number two overall seed, having to play the number 17 player in the country in the first round would have been the equivalent of Houston, who was the number two overall seed in the NCAA basketball tournament a couple months ago. That would have been the equivalent of them having to play Texas A&M, who was number 17 in the final AP poll prior to the NCAA tournament. That would have been the equivalent of Houston having to play Texas A&M in the first round of the NCAA tournament. That's a Texas A&M team that finished second overall in the SEC during the regular season. Now, was Houston better than A&M? If they would have played them, should Houston have won that game? Yeah, sure, they should have, but that's certainly a far more difficult matchup for them to win in the first round as opposed to playing a 16 seed. 
which is what they earn by virtue of their play during the regular season. That's why I say Ethan got screwed. The number two overall seed who earned that seed by virtue of his play over the course of the regular season had to play a top 20 player nationally in the first round. That is pure insanity. Now, how could something like that happen, you might ask? Very reasonably ask how that could possibly happen. Well, it's just another example of the NCAA in college tennis just not being able to get out of their own way. The way they see the tournament is absolutely absurd, and it's unacceptable. They really only seed the top eight players. So they will have seeds one through eight, and then the next eight seeds, they just call them nine through 16, and there's really no rhyme or reason as to how they seed those players nine through 16. It's just, oh yeah, these are like the other top 16 players, the other eight top 16 players in the country, and we're just going to kind of throw them in there randomly. But as bad as that is, it gets even worse. If you're not one of the top 16 players, then you basically just get thrown into a pool and all those players are viewed as exactly the same caliber of player. So Luke Fomba, who was the number 17 player in the country in the ITA rankings, who missed being seated by one spot, one spot, he ends up playing the number two overall seed in the first round, which is a complete in utter embarrassment and a complete and utter injustice to Ethan Quinn. I was outraged by it when the bracket actually came out. Now, I'm not as outraged by it anymore because Ethan won the match, but it was a very hard-fought match, guys. He got pushed to three sets there. He lost the first set, much like he did in the uh, Insulate Finals. He lost that first set in a tiebreak, 6-7, 9-7, and then he came back and won the second set, 6-2, and the third set was a tight one, 7-5. So he advanced the second round where he beat Ryan Segerman of North Carolina in straight sets, 6-4, 6-4, which was his easiest match of the tournament. Then he played another freshman, a guy from Stanford, Bazavretti, and uh, that was a tough matchup. Bazavretti was was game. He, he played a really good match, but Ethan again was able to prevail in three sets, 6-3, 4-6, 7 Then in the quarterfinals, he played a dude from Michigan named Andrew Fenty. He handled him with relative ease, 6-2, 6-4, and then he got matched up with Virginia's number one singles player in the semifinals, a guy named Chris Rodish, who is a junior, is a really good player. And it's another match that Ethan lost the first set. He lost the first set pretty bad against Rodish, 2-6, but came back and breezed through the second set, 6-2, and finished it off with a 6-4 victory in the third set to take the whole match, setting up the matchup for the national championship against Michigan's Andre Styler, which just went back and forth, man. In that finals matchup against Styler, who, by the way, is a senior, again, Ethan, a freshman, Ethan jumped out to a big lead in the first set, 5-2. That means he was up two breaks, guys. He had broken Styler's service twice, and Ethan was serving for the, for the first set, up 5-2. Guys, that's a massive lead in a college tennis set. But when Ethan got that lead, you could kind of tell watching it, he got nervous. And he started getting away from the things that got him to that point. For those of you who have never seen Ethan play, his greatest weapon is his absolutely monstrous forehand. It is a monster forehand. He is a power player at his core. That's really what he is with that forehand. But that's not all Ethan is. Like, that's his comfort zone, but he's also a really good net player. He's got a really good volley game. He sees the court really well, especially for somebody so young. He's a really good athlete. Uh, he's actually filled out his body. He's gotten stronger over the course of this year. He's, he's got really good length, which helps him at the net. He helps him as a defensive player as well. His backhand is solid. It's not that his backhand is not good. It's a solid backhand, 
but still it's very, very much a defensive tool for him, like it is for most elite players. There's few, there's very few elite players out there where their backhand is their number one weapon. It's his shield. That's what it is. It's Ethan's shield, while the big forehand is his sword, so to speak. But once he went up 5-2, watching that first set, Ethan got tentative, guys. He did. He wasn't striking the ball as confidently as he was to get to that point and how, and how he'd been striking the ball really for the past two months. Uh, he also made some poor decisions on like what types of shots to hit and when to hit those shots. He, it seemed like he wasn't trusting those big ground strokes as much. He did hit some poor volleys as well, and he just allowed Styler to seize momentum and get both breaks back and send that first set ultimately to a tie break that Styler just dominated. He dominated the tie break, and it was 7-2 was the final score in the tie break to give him the, the first set 7-6. And so Ethan uh, was in a tough spot there. So you dropped that first set. And it's like losing a set. Ethan had done that before. He'd done it a couple times earlier in this tournament. But it's the way that he lost that first set that had me very concerned about him coming back out for the second set. Because when you are up two breaks in a match with that much at stake for a freshman, that could be trouble city. It absolutely could. That's the type of thing that could truly demoralize you. So if that was me... I would have taken the fully allotted time before I came out for the second set. I would have gone to the bathroom, got a drink of water, and just, you know, got my mind right and kind of refocused there. But that's me. That's not what Ethan did. I was a little concerned. He came out really quickly, much more quickly than I thought he would after the way the first set went down to get started in that second set. But hey, you know, everybody handles things differently, and that's how he wanted to go about it. But when he came out for that second set... He got broken early on. He got into an 0-2 hole. And when you just drop the first set, the way that he dropped that first set, and now you're down in an 0-2 hole in the second set, it takes a lot of guts, a lot of mental toughness to be able to fight back out of that hole, not just to kind of give in, to keep that composure. And that's one thing I want to emphasize about Ethan, guys. As a young guy, he is way ahead of his years in terms of the poise in which he plays, and the confidence in which he plays, and just the way he fights. That's one of the, the hallmarks of our team in general, beyond just Ethan. Those guys fight, and that's a testament to Manny Diaz and Jamie Hunt and how they are coached, the composure, the confidence, the poise in which they play. And Ethan certain, certainly embodied that, not just in this final match, but really all through the singles tournament. Because again, he got pushed to, to three sets in a couple of those matches against really high-level players. But Ethan didn't quit here. He battled back, and he got the break back, but then he gave the break back up again, and so he's down 5-4 late in the second set, and he's receiving. Styler is serving not just for the set. He's serving for the match, for the national championship. And in that game where Styler was up 5-4, serving for the match, he got out to a 40-love lead. What that means, for those of you that don't follow tennis as closely as I do, that means that Styler had quadruple match point. They play no ad tennis in college tennis. So once the game gets to deuce, the next point wins the game. So up 40 love, all Styler needed was literally one more point and he would have won the whole damn thing. So Ethan's down 40 love, back as much against the wall as it could possibly be in the biggest match of his career to this point. And on that first of four match points, EQ was very aggressive. He'd been tentative, really, going back to the first set. He'd been much more tentative with his ground strokes, not as confident in those ground strokes towards the end of the first set and really to that point through most of the second set. But when his back was against the wall, what did Ethan do? 
he pulled out his weapon. He pulled out that forehand. And he just let it rip, man. He just started striking the ball like he knows how to strike the ball. So in 40 love, Ethan pulls out that weapon and hits a really big cross-court forehand that put Styler in trouble. Styler could barely get his racket on it. Ethan, again, smart player, sees the court well. He understood the moment, what he needed to do there. When your opponent is in trouble like that, what do you do? You rush the net. You come to the net because they're not going to be able to get much on that ball and you want to put it away with ease, which is exactly what he did. Styler's able to get it over the net, but with not much pace to it all. Ethan's at the net, he takes it right there and volleys it to the open court. And so he lives to fight another day. Now it's 40-15. Still a long way to go. Still three match points left, but hey, he's still alive. Then on the next point at 40-15, Ethan pulls out his the biggest weapon that he has in his arsenal, which not is not just the forehand, but his inside-out forehand. Guys, that is his shot. If he can set up the inside-out forehand, he will put it away. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do about it. I think the echoes are still ringing out there at the Damaguil Tennis Complex from some of the inside-out forehands this guy had hit this year. So he pulls that weapon out at the right time, was able to get around on it and pull out that inside-out forehand. Styler had no chance on that one. So now it's 40-30. Okay, okay. Now things are getting kind of interesting, but still, Styler has two match points. All he needs is one more point. But really, after that inside-out forehand, it just seemed like Ethan was feeling. You kind of see the body language, and this dude was, he was ready. He could see it. He could sense it. So then on the next point, 40-30, Ethan is able to keep the return in play, and he got a little help on this one. Styler kind of just hit his backhand out. That, that's what happened there. He just hit a bad shot, backhand out. Now it's deuce. Now it's like, uh-oh, okay, all right, this is real. Can, can Ethan actually hold on here and turn the tables on Styler the way that Styler turned the tables on him in the first set? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely, because that deuce point... Styler hit a, it was a really good serve. He hit a wide serve. Ethan was able to get a racket on it and just keep the return in. It wasn't like it was a, a great shot. I mean, it really was a great play just being able to get a racket on the ball and keep that in play. But Styler was set up really nicely to put that ball away and win the whole thing. And he just hit it long. He just missed. Unforced error. But hey, that's college tennis. That's tennis on any level. And it just happens sometimes. So Ethan hunkered down and got it done, got the break back. He then holds served to make it 5-5. Then they take turns holding. It gets to 6-6, goes to a tie break. And Ethan didn't dominate the tie break, but he he did enough. He did what he had to do. He won that tie break 7-5, takes a second set. But the way that he was able to come back there, you could see that took something out of Styler. And Styler was a really good player, guys. He is a really good player. He was a top 10 player nationally. He was number eight coming into the tournament. Big six foot five dude, huge serve. But Ethan just had more mental toughness, at least on Saturday. On that day, Ethan was the more mentally tough player. He was the player with more composure, who had a little bit more poise, and he outlasted Styler. In the second set, he kind of ran away the second set, won that 6-2 to win the NCAA Singles National Championship. And I'll say it again, guys. John Isner is an all-time great. He's one of the all-time great Georgia tennis players. He's one of the all-time great college tennis players. I mean, he's he was fantastic. And I'm not ready to say that Ethan Quinn is better than John Isner. I'm certainly not ready to say that. Ethan is very young. He's got more work to do. But I am ready to say this. Ethan is the best Georgia men's tennis player that I have seen since John Isner. In those 15 years since John Isner played at the Damageo Tennis Complex, Ethan is already, as a freshman, the best Georgia tennis player that I have seen on the men's side of things. And there have been a lot of really good players, guys. I'm not trying to shortchange anybody out there. We've had some really, really good players over the years. Austin Smith was fantastic for us. Really loved watching Wayne Montgomery. Nathan Pasha was really good for us for, for years. 
Jan Zielinski wasn't really a dominant singles player for us, but he's a really good singles player, but he was one of the best doubles players that I have seen at Georgia, and he's making a hell of a career for himself right now in the pros. He just won uh, a Masters 1000 tournament as a doubles player, so Jan was fantastic, but Ethan... I, I can confidently say, guys, like right now, even as a freshman, he's already the best, at least the most gifted, the most talented Georgia men's tennis player that I have seen since John Isner. But don't look now, guys. This Georgia tennis train is about to become a runaway freight train because not only are we going to return Ethan Quinn next year. Now, we are losing a bunch of super seniors that were key contributors to this team and really getting our program back where it des- where it should have been all along. We, we kind of fell off for a couple of years, but this group of super seniors was exactly what this program needed. Just fantastic young men who cared about the University of Georgia, who represented us the right way every single time out there in the court and off the court as well. Talking about guys like Philip Henning and Trent Bride and Blake Kreuter and, and Britton Johnson and even Tidor Yuska, who came over from Clemson this year. He was only here for one year as, as a transfer, but he was a really key part of this team as well, playing two doubles and six singles for us for most of the year and was just really a fantastic ambassador of Georgia tennis all year long for us. So those losses will hurt, but here's why I'm so excited about the future of, G- of Georgia tennis. We have Ethan Quinn coming back. We have a really good core coming back with him and Miguel Perez-Pena, who was fantastic for us down on court six and court five this year. I think his best tennis is certainly ahead of him. He really, really made some strides this year, got his body in shape. Thomas Paulson, who wasn't in the singles lineup this year because, we had a, again, we had a bunch of veteran players, but Thomas Paulson's the number former number five overall recruit in the country out of the state of Washington, and he came in and in the NCAA tournament in the second round had to play court one doubles with Ethan Quinn because Trent Bride was out with a, with, some, with a stomach issue and Thomas came up huge played fantastic there so I think he's going to be a key part of what we do next year but we also happen to have the number one recruiting class in all of college tennis coming in next year headlined by a guy by the name of Alex Michelson another California kid coming all the way across country just like Ethan Quinn to the University of Georgia. And here's the thing about Michelson, guys. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he's going to be better than Ethan Quinn. I cannot tell you that with a straight face. I have not seen this guy play, and I think the world of Ethan Quinn, and it's hard for me to imagine how someone could come in and be better than him right now. But if you look at the UTR rankings, the Universal Tennis rankings, right now, Michelson's UTR is higher than Ethan's. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a better player because right now, Michelson, since he's not playing college, is able to go play a bunch of those pro tournaments. So he's playing some more highly ranked guys than Ethan's playing these highly ranked guys like in, in the ATP and world tennis. So being just playing those matches and winning a couple of those matches, he beat, he beat a guy by the name of Jack Sox. Some of you, who, if you follow college tennis, you might be aware of that name. Not an elite player, but a good player who has been as high as number eight in the world in the ATP rankings. Yeah, Michelson, as a high school senior, beat that guy a couple of months ago. So again, I'm not sitting here trying to tell you he's going to be better than Ethan. I'm not going to say that at all. But at the very least, I can say this. That's going to be one heck of a one-two punch at the top of our lineup next year. So we will be relatively young next year, but we are going to be extraordinarily talented. I really believe, guys, as talented as about any team in the country. We certainly won't have the experience. But the talent is going to be there. So I'm very excited to see how things turn out next year with all that young talent. But when you have a guy like Ethan Quinn at the top of your lineup, the singles national champion, you got to feel really, really good about that going into next season. All right, guys, let's keep this thing rolling. And our next topic would normally on any other show be a lead topic. 
but a national championship, in my opinion, just had to take precedence over it today. But on Friday, as you all well know by now, Athletic Director Josh Brooks officially dismissed Georgia head baseball coach Scott Strickland after he led the Bulldog program for 10 seasons. In those 10 seasons, Strickland went 299-236 in one overall during his time in Athens and 121-146 in one inside the SEC. We also only made the NCAA tournament three times in those 10 years. Now, 2018, 2019, we were good those years. Gotta give Strickland credit there. We were national seeds both seasons, which means that we were a top eight seed, which would have meant that if we would have won the regional that we hosted, we would have then hosted a super regional, which could have then put us in line to make a run to the College World Series. Unfortunately, under Scott Strickland, we were never able to get out of a regional, not even one time, even in 2018, 2019, when we had really good seasons those years. And that's ultimately what sunk Scott Strickland is I think we had just maxed out. I mean, I, I have felt that way for a while, and I think our administration finally got to that point. I mean, if you look at Scott Strickland's time as head coach, guys, even go back to Kent State. We hired him from Kent State after he made a run of the College World Series. But that run that he made to the College World Series with Kent State was the only time in his career that a team that he coached actually made it out of a regional and even got to a super regional, much less the College World Series. And as I have said on this show a couple of different times over the past couple of weeks, When you have a player the caliber of Charlie Condon, who is breaking records and winning SEC Freshman of the Year awards, and you don't make the NCAA tournament, I don't know how you can keep that coach. Look, I know it's a team sport, guys. I know it takes more than just one player, but you have Charlie Condon. You have Connor Tate, who has been a stud in our lineup for a couple of years. You have a center fielder who's been on your team for, I think, 18 years. You have a really good third baseman in Parks Harbor. And you can't make the NCAA tournament. You can't even get in the tournament, even as like a four seed. Just like I'm not, I'm not asking to host. I'm talking about just getting in. You can't get in. You get swept by Missouri. You lose two out of three to Ole Miss. There's no way you can keep your job after that. Not when you don't have a strong enough resume to fall back on. It's not like you're talking about a guy that routinely makes NCAA tournament. It routinely makes super regionals. Has gotten the College World Series a couple of times at Georgia and just had a bad year. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is Mark Fox. Let's use that parallel, guys. Let, let, let's speak in Georgia sports terms and use that parallel. Mark Fox, really good coach, right? I, I thought Mark Fox was a good coach of basketball, like teaching basketball. Problem is, Mark Fox was not an elite recruiter. He could never consistently get enough big-time players for us to ever be more than pretty good and sometimes just barely good enough to get in the NCAA tournament, but never good enough to actually advance into the NCAA tournament. That's basically what we've been under Scott Strickland. We weren't very good in his first couple of years because our program was not on particularly solid ground coming out of the final years of David Perno. He kind of had to, it took some time to, to get us to the point where we could start to make the NCAA tournament. Now, it took him a little bit too long in my opinion, but eventually we got there, right? And it's, it's somewhat of a similar story there with Mark Fox. Program was obviously not in great shape coming off the Dennis Felton years. Took him a couple years, but hey, he got us into the NCAA tournament but we could never advance, just like with Strickland. Could never advance. Had some of those high points, but those high points weren't nearly high enough. And once he got the thing going, once Strickland got the program on solid ground after those first three or four years, well, we never, we were never terrible after that. We never had those years where we just like completely bottomed out. Although this year kind of felt like that at times, but still like record-wise, we didn't completely bottom out. 
Still took two out of three from Tech. Took two out of three from Tennessee, who's who's hosting a regional. Swept Arkansas, who's hosting a regional. But it's a lot like Mark Fox. Never bottomed out, but had too many years where we were right on the bubble to get in the tournament, but just barely fell short. And that's kind of where we are. Like two out of the last three years now, we have not made the NCAA tournament. Now we weren't too far off the bubble, but far enough to where we weren't getting in. And that's ultimately what matters. If you're not in, I don't care how close you were, you're not in. So yes, as I have been alluding to for a couple of weeks, a month or so now, and heck, more than just alluding to, I think I've flat out said it a couple of times, this move had to happen. It had to happen. I think this was a real litmus test for just how serious we are about our baseball program moving forward. Because in my opinion, keeping Scott Strickland around would have been a very clear message that we as an athletic department, are completely content just being a middle-of-the-pack SEC program. It's an okay SEC program that every now and then has a good year, but most of the time, we're kind of on the bubble of the NCAA tournament. A move like this, where you dismiss a coach who wasn't a, a disaster, but also just wasn't good enough, that sends the message that we have higher expectations and higher aspirations for our baseball program within our athletic department. And you know, our athletic directors, really going back to Greg McGarity and now Josh Brooks, have always talked about how the expectations they have for all of our programs is to be competing for championships. Now, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that you win the championship or you fall just barely short? Like, What what exactly does that mean? Somewhat of a nebulous phrase and concept, but competing for championships, whatever that means. Well, this is where it was time to put your money where your mouth is. In my opinion, Greg McGarity far too often would talk the talk. He would never walk the walk or very rarely walk the walk and actually put his money where his mouth was. You can point at Mark Rick and say Mark Rick, but guys, I'm telling you right now, that was not Greg McGarity's call. That was from a much higher pay grade than Greg McGarity. But bottom line is McGarity let some of these guys stick around way too long and he let our facilities just fall behind and fall further behind and then fall even further behind. But now Josh Brooks is the guy and We've already seen him with Tom Crean, with the basketball program, move on from Tom Crean saying this is not good enough. Now, to me, that was obvious. Like that had to be done. Crean was an absolute disaster. He won six games since last year. You had to move on from him. I think that was pretty clear. Now, going and hiring Mike White, stealing him from Florida, now that that showed me something. That showed me just how serious Josh Brooks is about winning at a high level throughout our entire athletic department. Going out and hiring USC's track coach. That tells me what Josh Brooks is about. He actually is not just about talking the talk. He's about walking the walk. Now, this one is strict, and I will say was not as necessarily clear cut. I still think it was pretty clear cut, but it was like a Tom Cree situation where the guy was an absolute abject failure. It was, wasn't even close. Never made a tournament, never, never even really got close to sniffing a tournament. So I take this as a very positive sign of Josh Brooks showing us that he expects more from our baseball program moving forward. I'll go back to it again, guys. I, I know this is nothing new for me. I've said this several times over the past couple of weeks, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you I think Scott Strickland is a bad coach of baseball. I think he understands the game. I think he probably teaches the game pretty well. I'm not going to sit here and say he was an absolute failure. He wasn't. There were some, some good seasons under Scott Strickland. My contention all along with Scott Strickland has very simply been that he is not the best that we can do. It's that simple for me. He was never the best that the University of Georgia could do for its baseball program. It's that simple for me. And when when you ask yourself that question, okay, is Scott Strickland the best that we can do? If you're Josh Brooks and you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, is Scott Strickland the best that we can do as our head baseball coach? And you tell yourself truthfully and honestly that the answer is no, he's not. Then the conversation is over. You have to move on at that point. 
That should be the goal for every athletic director out there. You find the right guy, you got to get the right guy, the right fit, but you've got to go and get as good of a coach as you possibly can. That's why I don't really necessarily have problems with teams moving on from coaches and within like one or two years of hiring them. I know in the past, the idea is like, hey, you got to give them three or four years, let them get a full team of their recruits in there. And on some level, yeah, ideally you would like to do that. But if you can already tell one or two years into a guy's tenure that it's painfully obvious that he's not the guy and you know you can do better, go ahead and move on. Because the longer you wait, the further you put your program into a hole. And that was my thing with Tom Crean going back to basketball. Like I knew the financial considerations behind keeping him for that final season. I know that his buyout dropped tremendously after that season, after the, the 2022 season. But if you didn't already know that he wasn't the guy after the 2021 season, I don't know what to tell you, man. And I, again, I know the buyout was significant going into 2022 if we would have fired him in that after that 2021 season. I understand all the financial implications and considerations behind it. I really do. But he wasn't the guy. And by us sitting there waiting for a full another year, we just put ourselves another year behind the eight ball trying to build our program back up and put us that much further behind and made Mike White's job that much more difficult. But anyway, yes, I do believe it was clearly 100% absolutely time to move on from Scott Strickland. He wasn't the guy. He was not the best that we could do. And here's why he wasn't the best that we can do, guys. It simply comes down to recruiting. Again, I think the guy was a good baseball coach. But when you're talking about college baseball, really baseball in general, baseball managers, baseball head coaches in college, it's really not so much about your coaching abilities. I'm not saying you can't help develop these guys and make them better pitchers and make them better hitters. Sure, absolutely, of course you can. But there's not there's just not nearly as much strategy that goes into baseball as there are some other sports. Like, I don't know, football, for instance. There are just not as many decisions in game that a head coach is having to make that have that much of an impact on the win-loss record of your team. Sure, you know, who you're going to star, what's your lineup going to be, who are you pinch hitting, when do you take your starter out, who are you bringing out of the bullpen. Like all those are decisions coaches have to make. And sure, they, those decisions can absolutely lose you or win you a game here or there. Of course they can, but those decisions are not as weighty as the decisions that are made on the football field, for instance, from a strategic standpoint. I think your coach's ability to actually coach football is far more important and impactful on the team's record than a baseball coach's is. Just, that's just my opinion. What I feel like a baseball coach needs to do more than anything is be able to recruit. You've got to get the players in there. So what it comes down to, guys, you've got to go get the players. And that is the case in every single sport. But in baseball, when again, I don't think coaching is as much of a, of a factor when it comes to the, the ultimate outcome of four-year team. You've got to go out there and get the players. How has Tennessee become a baseball power now all of a sudden? Tony Vitello has gone and recruited his ass off over the past couple of years. It's not that he's just like an X's and O's baseball genius and he's just coaching the circles around all of his peers. That is not at all what's happening. He's gone out and he's recruited some of the best players in the country and he's built that roster up. That's why Tennessee has jumped into that top group of SEC baseball programs in the past couple of years. Why have we not been able to jump into that group? Because we simply don't have enough good players. That's what it comes down to. We've got some good players. You've got Charlie Condon. You've got Connor Tate. We've had some good pitchers in the past. You had Robert Tyler. You had Emerson Hancock. We've had some of these good pitchers. The problem is we haven't had enough of them and we haven't had the pitchers and the hitters, the elite pitchers, the elite hitters stacked up on the same teams. You know, one year we'll have this crazy, awesome pitching staff. 
but a terrible lineup. The next year, we'll have a fantastic lineup or a pretty good lineup and just an absolutely abysmal pitching staff like we had this year. But you guys know me. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I don't like to come on here and just spew things out there and just throw opinions against the wall without being able to back them up. I like to have information. I like to have facts to back them up. And so I went about trying to do that for you guys. So I went and I looked at baseballfactory.com. Now, I know there's a couple of different sites. There's Baseball America. There's D1 Baseball. Reality is you have to have subscriptions to those sites in order to pull up their, their recruiting rankings, and I didn't want to pay the money just to pull out some numbers for you guys. Baseball Factory, I could pull these numbers for free. So I got the top 100 players from each recruiting class going back for years and years. Now, I went and I looked at the last five seasons, so 2023 back to 2019, the last five recruiting cycles. And here are the numbers I've got for you guys. So in this current class, the 2023 class, there were seven top 50 players from the state of Georgia in the top 100. How many did Scott Strickland sign? Zero. There were 13 players overall in the top 100 from the state of Georgia. How many did Scott Strickland sign? He signed one of them. In 2022, there were four four of the top five players nationally, according to baseballfactory.com, were from the state of Georgia. How many do we sign? Zero of them. Six of the top 50 from the state of Georgia signed zero of them. 11 of the top 100 were from the great state of Georgia. We signed zero of them in 2021. Four of the top 50 were from Georgia. We signed, you guessed it, zero of them. Nine of the top 100 were from Georgia. You again guessed it, we signed zero of them. 2020, there were three top 50 players from the state of Georgia. Didn't sign one of them. Five top 100 also signed zero of those players. 2019, there were two players from the state of Georgia inside the top 10. Didn't sign either of those guys. There were eight top 50 players in 2019. We did sign one of them. And there were 10 in the top 100 overall from the state of Georgia in 2019. Again, only signed one of them. And that was Will Childers, who was, well, he was number 28 nationally out of Lakeside. So, Add all of those numbers up, guys. And, you know, I'm not good at math. I add them up a couple times for you guys, though, just to double-check myself. And so over the past five recruiting cycles, according to BaseballFactory.com, there have been 28 players from the state of Georgia inside the top 50. We signed one of them. That was Will Childers. There have been 48 players in the top 100 over the past five seasons. We have signed one of them of them. So that means we have signed two combined players in the top 100 over the last five recruiting cycles. That's simply not good enough, guys. Who signed all those players? Of course, Georgia Tech's got a fair number. They got the most of They got more of them than anybody else. Tech signed seven players over that time span that were in the top 100 from the state of Georgia. Mississippi State signed five. Vandy, who's been awesome, we know that. They signed five. LSU, a, a traditional power in college baseball, signed three of them. Tennessee signed two. Clemson signed three. Alabama signed two. Florida signed two. Auburn signed two. South Carolina signed five. Um, Georgia State, guys. Georgia freaking state signed two of them. Just as many as we did. That, that's We've been recruiting like Georgia State, guys. That's essentially where we are. We have been recruiting like Georgia State. Uh, Duke got one. Arizona State got one randomly. Louisville got one. Texas Tech also randomly got one. Miami got one. But that is my point, guys. We simply have not recruited well enough under Scott Strickland, especially within the state of Georgia, where we have a very, very fertile recruiting ground to work from. He couldn't get the job done. He could not get enough good players in this program. And it was time to move on. It was time to go out there and get somebody that can do a better job bringing elite players into this program and elevating our program in the process. All right, guys, I'm not done with baseball yet. I want to talk about Scott Strickland. I wanted to address him directly first there and the decision to move on from him. But I do want 
to look towards the future with the Georgia baseball program. And here's what I want to tell you guys. I know that I am a host of a Georgia podcast. I know that I'm a Georgia guy. I'm proud of it. I'm not going to pretend to be anything else. But I also believe that I can be objective. I, I try my very best to be as objective as I possibly can. And objectively, I do firmly believe that the Georgia baseball program is a sleeping giant in college baseball. I truly believe that. Now, I know that basically every fan of every program out there believes that their program, if they haven't been good for a couple of years, believes that their program is the sleeping giant. I know that, guys. But I, I truly believe that the University of Georgia is indeed a sleeping giant in college baseball. And hear me out on this. Let me try to explain this. The biggest factor behind that assertion is the location of our university. We are positioned in a recruiting hotbed, just like we are in football and really every other sport. Outside of Florida and California, we have as much high-level baseball talent, per capita especially, as any state out there. I'm going to go back to those recruiting numbers I just read you guys, right? So what did I say? that There were 48 players from the state of Georgia inside the top 100 over the past five recruiting cycles. So that comes out to just a shade under 10%. Just a shade less than 10% of all top 100 players going to BaseballFactory.com from the United States of America over the past five seasons have come from the state of Georgia. And California has four times our population and Florida has about two times our population. Just like in football, per capita, I will put us right up there with just about any state in the country when it comes to producing baseball talent. But again, the problem is we've only landed two of those top 100 prospects in the last five recruiting cycles. That's it. Where would our football program be if we'd only signed two top 10 prospects from the state of Georgia over the last five recruiting cycles? Where would our football program be if that was the case? certainly wouldn't be winning national titles. There are a lot of factors that go into winning, but as I have told you over and over and over again over the years, I firmly believe that player acquisition is the predominant factor in winning at a high level. Sure, you have to have player development, player deployment, all of those things factor in as well, but none of those things matter. It doesn't matter if you how well you develop your players if they simply don't have the talent. It doesn't matter how you deploy your players if they just simply aren't good enough. First and foremost, you got to have the players. You've got to acquire the talent. And we simply have the ability to do so. And guys, yes, look, I am fully aware that there are other things going on within our baseball program that have made it difficult for the head coach to recruit. I'm fully aware of the facility's challenges and the role that has played in us falling behind in recruiting and falling behind in general as a program, while every other program around us has just heavily invested in baseball. I'm acutely aware of that. I'm acutely aware of the challenges that creates recruiting top talent. I'm also aware of, of, of a certain level of apathy among the Georgia fan base when it comes to Georgia baseball, because the reality is we haven't really had all that much to cheer for in a while. Now, I would argue our fan base shows up and we're very passionate about it when we're given something to cheer for. But, you know, you go to Foley Field this year and the crowds were pretty sparse and fairly apathetic, especially once we got into the season. It was pretty clear where this thing was heading. And then you look across the country at other programs like Ole Miss, Mississippi State, who weren't great this year, but hey, man, their fans still showed up. They were still passionate about their programs. And that's not necessarily been the case with our baseball program for a variety of reasons, but it hasn't been the case. So I'm aware that there are some challenges there. And I know that you might say, well, Tyler, that undercuts your argument that Georgia baseball is a sleeping giant. Well, I disagree with that because here's my thing, guys. Those disadvantages, the especially when it comes to the facilities 
and the investment in baseball, those are self-imposed disadvantages. Those are not inherent disadvantages that are out of our control to address. Those are not outside of our control because there are some programs who have disadvantages that are just inherent and that's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for them to ever really, truly overcome. For example, I guess it's going to be really hard for Kansas football to ever become a consistent power. Like it really is going to be hard for Kansas to ever become like this big time consistent player in college football because they just don't have the talent base. They don't have the population base. They really don't have the history too, but it's more than just that. Like you can overcome not having history. I mean, TCU doesn't have a, a long college football history. I mean, heck, they got into the Power Five like less than a decade ago and they just played for a national championship. Now they got run out of the building, but they played for a national championship, man. But why was it TCU, not Kansas, that was able to do that? Because TCU is located in Texas. You can get better players in Texas than you can in Kansas. It's just it's just demographics, guys. That's all it is. Here's another one. Why has Nebraska fallen off and not been able to get back in the world of college football? Why is it taking them so long? Because they're in Nebraska. There are no college football players in Nebraska. You simply cannot build an elite roster of football players from the state of Nebraska or the surrounding states. There's just not enough good players in that area. It's just geography. It's just demographics. You know, when they were in the Big 12, Nebraska at least played Texas. So they had this kind of recruiting ground they could pull it pull out of Texas because you could sell those guys hey you know you know what you're gonna play Texas every single year but now you're out of the big 12 and now the demographics change a little bit and now you can't pull into Texas you can't tap into it and now you just simply can't get back to relevancy in college football that is an inherent disadvantage that is just really really difficult for Nebraska to overcome here's another one Wake Forest is Wake Forest ever going to be a consistent contender in college football? Like a consistent like championship contender? No, of course not. And theirs is not so much about population. Like North Carolina has some good players. It's more about the inherent disadvantage of just the size of the school. It's a very, very small school, which means they have a very, very small fan base, which means they have a very, very small donor base. So they're never going to be, ha- be able to have the facilities to compete with the other programs that they play against on an annual basis. Why hasn't Mississippi State, here's another example, why haven't they won a conference championship since 1941? Well, there's a lot of reasons, because they have a lot of inherent disadvantages. They don't have a very populous state. They don't have a lot of football players, high-level elite football players that come out of the state of Mississippi that you can draw from in-state. They don't have the donor base. They don't have the talent. College town, that that is something that, that helps you in recruiting. When you have a university located in Starkville, Mississippi, you're just simply not going to be able to recruit with other college towns the likes of Athens, Georgia, or heck, even Oxford, Mississippi, which I think is an overrated college town, but it's certainly better than Starkville. You're just not going to be able to recruit with towns like that. And there's absolutely nothing Mississippi State can ever do about that. Starkville is what it is. That's beyond their control. Mississippi is what it is. That's beyond their control in terms of the lack of talent in that state. Their donor base is what it is. I mean, guys, when Mississippi State won the College Baseball National Championship two years ago, that was the first national championship in school history for any sport. That is the only team national championship in the history of Mississippi State University. Let that sink in. They have 31 conference championships between their men's and women's programs in their athletic department's history. Guys, we've got 173. So you see what I'm talking about when it comes to inherent disadvantages? Programs like Mississippi State, programs like Nebraska, programs like Kansas, 
they have inherent disadvantages that are beyond their control that have kept them from consistently achieving at high levels. We do not have those issues. We have the ability to overcome every one of the disadvantages that we have imposed on ourselves. That's what they are, guys. They are self-imposed disadvantages. And we have the ability to get out of our own way anytime we decide to. Because we have the natural resources, the players in state. We have the financial might. We have the fan base. We have the city, the greatest college town in the history of college towns. We have the brand. We have the academic prestige as one of the top public universities in the country. We've just been asleep at the wheel. That's the issue, guys. That's the reality. We've just been asleep at the wheel when it comes to college baseball, just like we were for far too long with college football in the 90s. It's a simple matter of willpower. That's what it comes down to. Do we have the will to actually be better in baseball? Because if we do, if we are willing to open up the purse strings for facilities, which we are, guys. We're got, it's a $42 million expansion that we've got coming over two phases of, at Foley Field. If we have the will to pony up and spend real money on a head coach to get one of the best head coaches in the country, if we just have the will to commit to baseball, this program absolutely has the potential to take off. It's just a matter of how much we care. How much do the decision makers inside Buttsmere actually care about making Georgia baseball a true contender? Because if they care, it'll happen. Just like it happened with the football program. You open up the purse strings, you bring in Kirby Smart, you build it into our practice facility, which we had been needing for a long, long time. You complete the West End Zone project. You actually give us, who would have thought, locker rooms inside Sanford Stadium and not just these open rooms without lockers with a bunch of dry erase boards on them. You expand Butts Mirror. You actually give us a legitimate weight room facility. You build a state-of-the-art dining hall. If we start to do those things with Georgia baseball, we're going to start to get similar results as you've seen with college football. And I really believe that Josh Brooks' decision to move on from Scott Strickland is a strong sign that we are moving in that direction, that we are willing to commit the necessary resources to allow Georgia baseball to reach its potential. But all right, guys, that's all I got for today. I'm tired. I got to get out of here. I got to get up early for work tomorrow. I got to go in and get some stuff done after being out for the, the last couple of days of last week. But I want to make sure to get this episode in for you guys. We'll see what happens this week. Hopefully, we can get those win totals out to you guys. But if not, we'll get them to you next week. It just depends on if there's breaking news, which I think there might be with SEC spring meetings taking place this week. We'll just see how all that plays out. But hope you guys had a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. One way or another, we will be back with some more Georgia sports content for you guys later this week. You know how we roll. We won't leave you guys hanging. But thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate each and every one of you. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.